I would probably say that boys probably, or boys do actually need, well, most people actually do need the social aspect. And without it, it can like harm their mental health, I guess. So, and with the uh, schedule that they do now with like the online schools, it's much more difficult um, for me, at least. My name is Jack, and you are listening to Breaking the Boy Code. Hi, I'm Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. I've known Jack since he was probably eight or nine years old. It's kind of strange to think that at this point, it's been more than a year since I saw him in person. Uh, I'm recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And since we saw each other, he's uh, gotten two pet cats. He started high school. His voice has gotten deeper. But we've stayed in contact online. So I've been hearing from him about his school's adaptation to mitigate the impact of the pandemic and what that's meant for him. To give schools credit, like... They are making the best of a very difficult situation. Uh, and, and I remember the uncertainty, the stress, the consultations, the development of what does reopening schools look like that was going on in the summer. Like this hasn't been easy for any teachers, for administrators, for parents, but really it has not been easy for students. So to start out, here is what Jack's school is looking like. School is it's looking very different. Um, my school schedule, I have... Um, Mondays I have off, like I'm at home and then like I have Tuesdays and Thursdays at school and alternating Fridays. And I'm only there for like what, four and a bit hours a day, two hour periods, only two periods. It's really weird. It's annoying to have two hour periods though. So not that good. It took me quite a while to get used to it. I'm taking two, I'm only taking two classes. Um, this quad, there's like four quads two and a half months each. Um, first quad, I had three classes. I had two hours, two hours, then a two hour break, and then another two hour class. This quad, I only have two, two classes that are two hours each. So I go in and my first one's history. So we just do our class. We all have to like wear masks. There's no like, um, what's it called? Those things that go like around the desks, those like plexiglass, I think it's called. There's none of those to like take off your masks and stuff. So you have to wear your mask at all times, making it hard to like talk with other people and stuff. Um, and then you have like a 15 minute break. Then your second class, which is the exact same. I hung on to this audio from Jack for quite a while, just trying to figure out who to reach out to, to speak uh, about these topics. And ultimately I reached out to John Harper who is a past elementary school teacher and current assistant principal. He does a lot of training, uh, speaking. He hosts his own podcast, My Bad and Teacher's Aid, which are both about supporting educators to make mistakes, to overcome challenges, and be their best selves. One of the first things that John and I talked about was, okay, we both know logistically what school is looking like this year, but what's good about that and what's not working? No, that's a good question, and I think... <laughs> I think one thing that's working is giving the students some independence. While at the same time, I think that that independence can be difficult depending on how you're able to manage your time and budget your time. Because I'll be honest, for someone like me, it's very difficult. I do not do good, do well without structure. Whereas my daughter has done a very good job structuring her time, you know, making a schedule and, you know, aside from sometimes you know, needing me, needing some help to get up in the morning. She's, she's done a great job with that. And I think that's got to be the hardest part for kids is not having that same structure, not having that person right there in front of you. It's just, it's, it's been tough. And it's the one thing is nobody's been through this before. And so everyone's going through it for the first time. You know, part of my role is talking to teachers and talking to new teachers. And the one thing I've told new teachers is that, you know what, no one can really come to you and say they're experts at this because we're all going through this for the first time. It's, it's, it's very different and they're, they're learning as they're going. Maybe, is, maybe we'll find out that, you know, a couple of years from now, these students are really skilled at things um, 
down the line that they wouldn't have otherwise been. I think so. I think we're going to see extremes. I think we're going to see kids who flourish. And in all honesty, I think we're going to see kids who have a really hard time with it. From what I've seen, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Yes, there are students who are thriving right now, though in all honesty, they probably would have been thriving anyway. There are students who are stressed, students who are bored, students who uh, like the online aspects, but they miss their friends, students who really can't make online learning work for them. So there's no, um, there's no way to generalize what's going on. That's kind of what I appreciate about Jack's sharing his story is that it's a glimpse of beyond what you might read in a news article or hear anecdotally from your friends. It's, um, it's a glimpse of what, what school is looking like right now, beyond the surface level. And he really doesn't hold back. It's ridiculous. It's like, I can't, I can't focus for two hours. I focus for the first 45 minutes, then kind of like go off into my own world. Well, it's these classes that you're taking, you're doing the whole class in two and a half months instead of the usual 10 months. So it goes by four times faster than it's supposed to be. So there's no, there's no breaks or anything. It's always work. You go into class where everybody's wearing masks. So there's like, you can't really talk with people because you also have to sit like two meters away from everybody. So there's no social aspect. And then you have to sit there for two hours um, doing the same thing with no breaks, and it is really boring. I listen to the class, but sometimes I'll be like scrolling through Discord or whatever, or like Instagram. I'm just like talking with people during class, but I'm still like listening. So I guess I'm focused and not focused at the same time, but that's mostly in the second hour of class. The first class I'm focused, the first hour of class I'm focused, and it just gets really boring. I don't know how to, f maybe I'll just tell you, so rather than phrasing this as a question, like to me, it sort of feels like um, the school system found a system that works like logistically in terms of like scheduling, you know, and socially distancing that doesn't necessarily work for learning. That's like exactly what it is. It works like the way they format it with like the two and a half month uh, quads. It works pretty well. But it's hard to learn. It's kind of funny. At least, uh, as I said that, I was like, <laughs> that's not really the way I want to put it. Like, it's as funny as things can be funny in the midst of COVID-19. Or maybe it's just because Jack's attitude always kind of brings a smile to my face. But there is also something kind of tragic about a talented, bright-eyed ninth grader honestly saying, it's hard to learn right now. I've been doing online facilitation with NextGen Men for almost a year, and particularly I'll be doing after-school programs with our Discord server, NextGen Men Boys Club. So I've had a bit of a sense of online learning, um, tutoring, supporting things like algebra, um, which as an aside, like there are some things that are really, really hard to teach and learn online. And in my opinion, algebra is one of them. So algebra, some English essays, French homework. Um, but I really haven't been on the grind that teachers have been on this year. And John, on the other hand, has been on the front lines of the school system in the United States, and he offered me a really broad overview of what does it mean when we say it's hard to learn right now? What does that look like on a school or uh, the level of a school or a school district? You know, I was talking to a friend of mine or texting with a friend of mine today, and I said, I think the one thing we're seeing is it's very diverse across, not just across the country, across the world, in that... There are some schools and districts where, you know, the expectation is really high for teachers and the parents are, you know, on top of everything. And a lot, lot of times that might have to do with the fact that the parents aren't having to struggle with their day to day. And then we have schools and districts that, you know, we're happy just to get the kid online and to participate a couple of days a week. And I mean, there's... You know, there's districts, we're still trying to find some kids. I mean, literally, we've had kids who haven't checked in all year. And there's, I mean, that's going on around the country where there's kids who are not logging on at all. And it's tough because in, from a student perspective, I mean, a lot of times they know that we're going to give the kids grace. And that, that happened in the spring and that's been happening now. But then if you're a kid who's been working hard the whole time, you're thinking, okay, why am I really working hard when these kids who aren't even logging on, who are barely logging on, you know, are almost getting the same grade I am, or at least, you know, getting by. 
And I think that's, that's got to be tough on a kid. I mean, as much as we want to say kids should be intrinsically motivated to work hard at school, if we're, you know, if we're being honest as educators, I mean, we're, we're paid a salary. You know, we don't go to work for free. And I, I know it's, that's an extreme example, but, you know, sometimes I think kids, kids notice a lot more than we give them credit for, I think, no matter what age, whether it's pre-K or, you know, 12th grade. Yeah, that's for real. What would you say about disparities that have been exacerbated in the current situation? I mean, I think that's it right there. They have, they've been exacerbated. I mean, it's, it'd be like this. Imagine right now, if we're doing this podcast, and then in the room where I'm recording, there's three other people recording a podcast with three other people on the other end. That's what's taking place with a lot of our kids who are in rooms that are having to do online learning with four, five, six other people. And you know, I've been to their, I've been to their apartments, their houses, and I think, wow, I can't. I mean, I have a hard time myself reading unless it's silent, and really writing and doing meaningful work if unless it's silent. And I know there's kids, you know, all over the world that are having to do work in environments that are, you know, very difficult, much different than a class. I mean, classes don't need to. I don't mean they should be silent, but I think the conditions in which kids are having to learn are very different across the country. We have people that have learning labs. They might have everything set up. They have their desk, they have their snacks, they have this, they have the other. And then we have kids that are just, you know, barely getting on or we're just, it takes forever just to get them Wi-Fi. We have to find them hotspots and, you know, no fault of their own, you know, it's tough. And I think then things like lack of sleep, lack of nutrition, lack of security, that gets, you know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then you think, okay, they don't have that. Why on earth am I going to log on for seven hours and do this? And so I think, I mean, these are problems that we had before the pandemic. And now, like you said, they're exacerbated. It's, it's really, it's really difficult, but I have seen, you know, I know there's very diverse situations going on. And like I said, it'd be like trying to conduct three or four different podcast interviews within the same room. I'd have a hard time focusing. I remember in the summer talking with a mom who we were talking about the upcoming school year and she said, throw it all away. And I, again, it was a bit tongue in cheek, but she was basically saying, have some perspective. The curriculum is not at stake here. So maybe you don't get algebra totally figured out this year. I don't know why I'm picking on algebra, but you don't get algebra figured out. That's okay. What matters is staying in touch, supporting kids' mental health and well-being in the midst of closures, um, the difficulties associated with social distancing and isolation, making sure, for example, they're reading and working on learning goals, but don't burn them out just for the sake of checking boxes in the curriculum. And that, that, you know, that resonated with me, I've, but I've also never been the hugest fan of the curriculum. Um, but I think something that's become really apparent this year, and it was always apparent if you were looking, but now maybe more so, that school is about a lot more than math or science or literacy. So I asked Jack, sure, learning is hard, but what about the social aspects of school? As an athlete, have you had a hockey team this year? Or as a young teen who's highly focused on his friends, have you had a group of friends form in your grade nine class? Well, my grade eight was, it was like the best grade I've ever had. My teacher was amazing. Um, I, ha I was friends with like everybody in the class. So grade eight was definitely better than grade nine, but there was also no virus or anything. So, well, for like the first, I think the quarantine happened in like the last two months of school or something, maybe more. But before the quarantine, we had, um, I think it was six periods a day. And then we had like the trimester or something. There was like three different quads or something. Not quads, uh, three different uh, sections. Um, and the periods were an, only an hour each. And they, the, um, it was all in the same class. So it was like much better and much easier to like talk with other people, be social, make friends. Um, if there, if, um, we weren't wearing masks and we were like closer and there was no like virus, it would be much easier to make friends. But when you can't like talk with anybody and you're always far from somebody, um, it's really hard. The first day of like school, that was in August or in September, I think, um, before school started, I was like really nervous because I don't, it's not that I don't know anybody. But more like I do know lots of people. I know all these people from somewhere. Like some of them could have been in my hockey league, my baseball league, whatever it was. And I knew like a lot, like all the people in my class I knew before it even started. 
but there's no, they've, they're nobody that I've like really talked to before. Um, so it's kind of like, you know them, but you've never talked to them. So it's kind of weird. How do you think you would have approached that if it wasn't a COVID situation? Um, I would probably just like go up to them and be like, Hey, remember me from blank? Um, and then probably just get along from there. The, the friends that I have this year, I've met in like breakout rooms when I'm at home because you're not wearing masks. You can talk to them. No kidding. Yeah. So it's so it's like wearing a mask. So, okay, wait. So you're saying that wearing a mask is so, makes it so hard to connect with people that it's easier to do it over a screen um, in a small group breakout room. Yeah, very much. What do you think it is about the masks? Well, you can't, it's not even, it's not just the masks, but like you can um, have, uh, you can like when you're talking with somebody like facial expressions and like being able to like read lips and stuff, it just makes it much easier to talk. But when you're like, I was at the store the other day um, at like a subway and I was trying to like talk with the employee and it was really awkward because we were like just nodding at each other because I was trying to like talk, but they couldn't hear and then they started mouthing stuff and I couldn't see that. So it's just really difficult. Masks have been a defining feature of young people's lives throughout the pandemic. And it's easy to imagine how this has impacted their ability to communicate effectively in social settings. Like, I think we've all experienced that in in some kind of way, the frustration of not being able to connect as fully as we're used to. But I don't know, I guess for me, it's helpful to remember what it was like in grade nine and I know we're completely different people. Like I am not Jack, but myself in grade nine, like I would have taken any social cues I could get in the midst of the nervousness of a new school and the tentative confidence of new friends. Like I was looking really carefully at the people around me and then just the fun and the, and the ways that we related to each other. It's kind of hard to imagine all that with a mask on. And as a quick aside, like as I, as I started writing this, I thought about masks maybe as a parallel for social media communication, the lack of facial cues that makes it kind of really hard to, well, like, for example, like the whole thing about cyberbullying and, and, and that happening in a digital space or the lack of like vocal nuance when you're communicating by text. Um, but that aside, I'm not really that concerned about young people. I've seen um, some hand wringing about kids' social skills after the pandemic. And I think pro-social brain development is a lot longer and more complex of a process to be significantly affected by, um, by masks and social distancing. And I think many young people are proving that they can leverage technology alongside in-person social experiences to maintain and deepen connection. And that's something that has, has kind of arisen with this generation. So like Jack demonstrates, young people are navigating those challenges and the challenges of ninth grade by finding those points of connection. It's just a bit harder right now. And if I pass it back to John, that's something that adults are dealing with as well. And like you said, I think with the mask on, it can be tough to empathize and see the full expression. I mean, it's hard to even know who's talking sometimes when you're in a room and everyone has a mask on. I mean, that happened to me the other day. I was literally, I was at the at Walgreens. I was at the pharmacy and I was picking up something, picking up some medicine. And I thought the woman, I, I thought I was talking to the same person and they said, okay, that'll be 200 some dollars. And I almost lost it. I thought, what in the world? And then I look over and it was, it was someone totally different talking. There were two people there and I, I couldn't tell who was talking to me simply because with masks on, you can't always tell. But I think it's, I think the one thing that this is, the, the, the hard part and the good part about this is that it forces you to learn to be with yourself. And I think that's very difficult. That's hard as adults, and it's even harder as, as kids. And it's forced kids to be with themselves and just themselves at an earlier age than most of us had to. In other words, most of us did not have to, at age at school age, simply be alone as much as kids are alone right now. And, you know, like anyone, when we're alone, sometimes we think of, happy thoughts, but it's easy for your mind to go to negative thoughts. And so I think finding breakout rooms, finding, finding at least one or two other friends, I think that's, that, that's the key. I know that during school, a lot of times kids have 
associations with many more people. Whereas right now, remotely, it's going to be maybe one or two kids that you're close with. And I think that does, in a sense, mimic and prepare kids for adulthood. Because sometimes, you know, I'll be talking to my, my daughter or my son about that because they might be saying, well, I don't have as many friends or I don't have this or that. And I'll try to cheer them up or talk them out of it. And I'll say, honey, look, if you think about it, I only have a couple good friends that I even talk to. And it's not sad. It's just the way, it's a lot of times the way things go, as you get older, your, your circle gets smaller, but it gets tighter. And I think what this pandemic has done is it's forced people to you know, have a smaller circle and it's forced it to be tighter. But it is also you know, very difficult to find out who you want in that circle because you don't know much about the person on the other end if you haven't spent much time with them in person. Like I said before, I kind of want to steer away from generalizing young people's experiences with the pandemic, really because I've heard a lot of different experiences. Like I know a teenager whose friends are hanging out without him because they're ignoring social distancing and he's not. And I know another guy who's uh, struck up a really meaningful friendship with the girl next door because they go for walks together. And I know a senior about to graduate from high school who's planning on going to college next year and living with the friends that he grew close to in the midst of the pandemic. So it's interesting to think about, it is interesting to think about those who have gotten closer with their friend group and imagine how that process happens. I know with next gen men, uh, I know with next gen men's online discord community that I've heard from boys who have told me, well, they used to play video games, but now mostly they just talk with their friends online because that connection is what matters most. Being alone or even just distance from people is definitely a struggle. And that's why I like the distinction that John makes between being alone and finding at least one or two other friends. So friendship matters as much as it ever has. And we also know that in many ways it's more challenging than it's ever been. For me, there's a question of how are young people working through that? And here's what's working with Jack. My school has this Minecraft club, which is like the server that I play on a lot. And there's 10 people in like my group and they're all new people that I've become good friends with. So it actually like does help being online and being able to like just talk to them. There's like a couple, most of them are in grade nine. So they're in my grade, but um, none of them except for one is in any of my classes because there's, I think like what, 500 grade nines. So it's not that common to get in the same class as somebody unless you request it. Um, we, we, um, I've met up with, um, most of the people that in my group, like at school, because we have like this 15 minute break, but otherwise you, you can't really like, there's no lunch time where you can sit down with people and actually like have conversations. There's just small 15 minutes. I'm not, I'm, I'm not the best at like just making new friends off the bat. Like at my old school, it took me like a year to like get used to the people in my class since it was like a small school with the same kids every year. So and it, going into like a school that has almost like 2000 people, it's kind of hard. Um, and I was didn't want to go to the school. I was forced to go. I didn't have the choice. But um, so I think that it actually helped me um, just meeting people in Minecraft, talking through the chat. And then eventually every time we play now, we like voice chat. So it, it actually is pretty good for me, not for other people, though. I feel like having the quarantine was a good and a bad at the same time. You can't like talk with people and it's harder to learn and the schedule's pretty messed up. But also the online aspect and making friends there is much easier for me because I'm online a lot. This is a really important insight from Jack because it allows us to see some of the nuance of friendship development in the midst of online learning. Making friends is hard. That kind of goes without saying. And one of the precursors to a friendship is knowing that you have some sort of shared interest. One of the most important stages once you start to build that friendship is kind of finding out whether or not you genuinely like spending time together. And through Minecraft, he's found that. It would be like going to a music store and stumbling upon a group of guys who all listen to the exact same kind of music you do. Except music stores don't really exist anymore, so that's not a good example. It would be like going to get your skates sharpened and meeting a group of other guys your age there. So you already know you have a shared skill and then immediately, for example, being able to play a game of Shiny afterwards, there's fun there and there's reciprocity there. 
most of my friendships, I guess, are so old that I don't really, maybe that's why I'm struggling with this example. I don't really remember how they started, but newer friendships I can look back on and think, yeah, like we met at the rock climbing gym. And because of that, I knew that we had a shared interest and that I liked spending time with them. But as I'm going through this like description of friendship, like it occurs to me that friendship, it really isn't just as simple as spending time. I was just reading a developmental psychology textbook, as you do, and it said, it was talking about children's friendships, and it said, symmetrical reciprocity, the idea of giving and taking, is one of the main expectations of friendships across different ages, as children both offer and expect in return loyalty, trustworthiness, sympathy, and self-disclosure. So I guess I think about it as depth, how deep is that trust, that how how um, thorough, I guess, is that shared knowledge. When I talked about this with John, he talked about it in terms of space. And that's something that can be more limited in the context of a video game. It's hard to have a meaningful conversation over Minecraft or, you know, Madden or NBA 2K or whatever you're going to be playing or any game. You're going to, you're going to talk, there's no pause. There's no silence. In other words, it's always in response to some third party thing. In other words, it's always in response to what's going on in Minecraft or what's going on in the game. It's not in a response to another person. I think space forces you to really reflect. It forces you to really reflect on what's taking place and it forces you to generate something yourself as opposed to respond to something. And I think about this in a way, I've talked to teachers about this. When I go to sleep some nights as I'm laying in bed, if I have my phone or a Kindle with me or something, and I'm scrolling on Twitter or YouTube or whatever, it keeps my brain awake. But if I lay there and what what I found much more effective is if I just lay there with a pencil and a journal, there's plenty of space there. And I what I do is I just write down whatever comes to mind. And it doesn't take long for me to get tired and, you know, fall asleep. And I feel like there, there's space there in which you have to use your, your brain more as opposed to just responding. And I think our kids, when they just simply have to, re- when all they're doing is responding to something, not having to generate anything themselves. In other words, when they're producers and not consumers, even if it's just a conversation, I think it's different than mostly what our kids are going through right now. I mean, they're not having to really produce as much. There's no conversation going on. There's no just, you know, two people sitting, hanging out. It's, it's all in response to a game or a question that a teacher has provided or something like that. But I think those, those in-between moments are so powerful. And I think we, we don't have those anymore when we're virtual. I mean, we have them, but just when we're virtual, we do, we lose them a lot. And I think there's a lot to be said for them. Yeah, I'm really thinking about that like liminal space and like like when you're like driving places or you're like falling asleep at a sleepover or like changing after a practice, like those like in between spaces where you're not programmed and you're not um yeah, you're not um you're you're just sort of filling that space with yourself and you, the person that you're with. So, that's really interesting. No, definitely. I think it's it's so important. It, you know, it's so important to just have that that space in between. I mean, there's a line. I mean, it's it's tough because I mean that's something that you know you and I have never had to had to deal with, and they're having to deal with it right now. And it's something as simple as just not having. I mean, we all know how important you know just physical contact is. You know, a high five, a handshake, a hug, and I mean, we we miss that as educators as being able to give your friend a hug or shake their hand or a high five or just anything like that. We don't have that anymore. We're programmed. I mean, humans thrive off of that. The tactile, just, you know, someone touching someone as a, as a friend, as a form of, you know, a a way to show companionship or a way to show love, whatever kind of love that might be. And that's, that's missing right now from a lot of people. And that's tough. I mean, because we, you know, as humans, we need that. I mean, we, we thrive on that. I found that really thought provoking. 
also as someone involved in youth programming in a lot of different contexts, the idea of how to generate space in relationships. Because when a game or a program or a class isn't filling that space, but you do want to experience something with that person next to you, all of a sudden you're responsible for that space. And really you have nothing to put inside it but yourself. And that can be really special and meaningful, particularly as young people are finding and developing and mirroring themselves with the people around them. It's also not to say that it's impossible in video games or online. Like one of the latest things I've seen is young people staying on a Discord call or like a phone call, for example, for like 12 hours at a time, leveraging technology to just be together. I think one of the important things to remember is that young people are capable of making the distinction between serious and not serious, between fun that's just fun and fun that's meaningful, and between relationships that pass the time and relationships that sustain them. So even while Jack uses Minecraft as a point of connection, he's kind of aware that there's more to talk about. Um, we talk about like our classes and how they're going and what we're learning, but not really more into depth, into depth about that. Yeah. So do you have a sense of if people are feeling the same thing as you or you don't know? Uh, yeah, we mostly talk about very dumb stuff. So we talk about like our game. Um, we talk about how bad our teachers are or good. Um, we don't talk about important stuff. We just talk about fun stuff, I guess. Um, in grade eight, we, my, I had like a little friend group. It was much like closer than this year. Um, and we talked about a bunch of stuff, um, serious and not serious. This year is different than last year. That's a bit of an oversimplification, so I'm sending love to the adolescent boys who started at new schools this year, or whose friend groups have changed in the midst of the pandemic. It has not been easy. John and I started talking about what in particular stands out as the defining challenges of the pandemic. The first is the unknown, the uncertainty. We saw that back in the spring when school closures, uh, when there was the first wave and the, and the uncertainty of what, what's the summer vacation going to look like, all of that came with a lot of uncertainty that continues today. Stress is harder to deal with in a lot of ways when it doesn't have a finite end point. But when John started thinking about Jack in particular and high school, he kind of got lost in remembering the sensory details of life as a high school student, which for me is someone who is continuing to work extensively with high school students and, and right now with middle and high school students online, that really struck a chord. This is the way he put it. I think the unknown can be very stressful. I think kids would even, would, would even rather know that they're going to have some days that are just bad if they knew they were going to have some really good days too. And if they knew some really good things were coming up. But I think the unknown is, is very tough right now when you don't know what's coming next. It's, it's, it's really stressful. And I think one, you know, one piece of advice I have for adults and for kids is to think of what are the things you can control and, and try to focus on them. And it's, you know, you, you can't control when you're going to go back to school in person. You can't control when you're going to be able to be in public at a you know coffee shop or a restaurant or whatever, but you know, you can control what you read. You can control what you watch. You can control some of your habits. In other words, your, your exercise, your eating, your sleep. And I think really focusing on what you can control and trying to just do the best you can with that is, is, is a good thing. I think it's tough though, because, you know, this unknown, especially for kids, is difficult, especially like you were saying, you know, I think, Jack, you said it's ninth grade, right? That's the first year, at least here, it's the first year in high school. My daughter's in ninth grade, and she hasn't, you know, been able to really experience high school the way, you know, you and I probably have, whereas ninth grade is your first year in high school. You have, you might have football games, hockey games, you have whatever, I mean, pep rallies, you have whatever, and it's just, it's totally different. Yes, we probably don't have the same stressors. You probably don't have the feeling of, not fitting in or walking by a crowd and feeling nervous. But at the same time, you don't have those highs where you're walking by someone and, you know, you get those butterflies in your stomach because you think they're, 
attractive or something like that. It, it's a whole different thing. And so I think your friend that said that there's a ceiling on that, I think they, they nailed it right there because you don't have all of, don't have all the senses activated, kind of like what I was talking about earlier with touch. In other words, you don't, we're seeing many things that we're not seeing the same things, not touching the same things. In other words, we're not giving our friends hugs or high fives or handshakes. We're not seeing them. We're really not hearing them as much. And it's just, and probably not even tasting a lot of the same foods. And I didn't think about this until now as I'm talking about it, but I think our senses are are very, very different right now. And I think that that affects everything. That didn't hit me until right now, but the more I think about it, I mean, a lot of our senses are kind of in limbo, especially kids who aren't, you know, aren't, aren't seeing the same thing. They're not hearing, they're not feeling, they're not things that were so important when we grew up. So many tactile things, so much, you know, hanging out at the record shop. I am dating myself now, or, you know, hanging <laughs> out at, you know, ice cream shop, going to a football game, hearing that noise, smelling the popcorn that was being popped down below during the football game, hearing the pep rally, the nerves of walking by someone and the the highs of going by someone that you're attracted to. It's just I wonder what I wonder what it would sound like if um somebody was to ask about the senses of your high school because you've really that was really evocative your description of like the smells and the the like the feelings and like that was really sensory and i had i could i could do the exact same thing like disguise like painting the picture of going to the mall after yeah. school and then going to the movies like that was a thing that we did all through high school and yeah it's totally sensory so I want and I wonder, yeah, I, that's not a, you know, that's not a question that's ever come to mind for me and I've never asked anybody about it, but the way you did it right then, I was like, whoa, that's, yeah, that's an interesting sort of little picture. Yeah. And it never hit me until I'll be up. I never thought about it until just tonight, but I mean, that's, you know, all the things that, yeah, I mean, like going to the mall and, you know, you smell the, the Cinnabon place. I don't even know if you have, if you have Cinnabon there in Canada, but it's, you know, we have, you go by the Cinnabon place and you go by the, what it's just totally different that kids are missing out on. And yeah, I mean, when the senses aren't activated and then besides that, a lot of them, they're, they're, they're kind of deadened in the sense that a lot of kids' rooms are probably dark. And, you know, I like, I don't turn a lot of lights on when I'm, when I first wake up in the morning or when I go to bed, but I think, you know, it's probably darker in a lot of places right now because kids are going on Zoom and a lot of times they're not even turning their cameras on. And so it could be pitch dark where they are. And so, so much is just not being activated that even biologically, let alone, you know, mentally, a lot of biological functions aren't even taking place in the body. I think if we think about how school experiences have been different this year, I mean, things have also been really different for teachers. And I know a lot of teachers who are basically just trying to keep their heads above water. So I, that's kind of something that's just sort of worth saying as we head into this part of the episode. Um, and I'm kind of just, I'd want to spend some time talking about the importance of the role of the teacher and the learning relationship of a young person. And I feel like I've talked about this a lot by now. And I can't remember because it's it's been a while with Breaking the Boy Code. It might have been in the work I'm doing with Next Gen Men. It might be in the online course that we've developed this year called Raising Next Gen Men. One of the things that's been on my mind has been Michael Reichard and Richard Holly's study on the best practices of teachers who work with boys. And there's two really interesting pieces to that research. The first is the importance for boys of the relationship with their teacher one of the things that they wrote was that boys sustain their engagement in classrooms when they feel held in a positive, trusting relationship with their teacher. For boys, relationship is the very medium through which successful teaching and learning is performed. I found that really provoking when I read it and I haven't forgotten it. And it's actually echoed by research on immigrant boys' experiences in schools. I also found this this was thought-provoking as well. This is from researchers Carola Suarez Orozco and Desiree Bali in Kinhilliard. And they found that basically that boys who are exhibiting poorer academic achievement and performance might not actually be due to less academic interest or capacity for learning or from less effort. Not basically um, from a lack of cognitive or behavioral engagement, but from the experience of feeling less support from teachers and staff, perceiving school as more negative, hostile, and racist, and ultimately experiencing less relational engagement. Relationship from Michael Richard and Richard Holly comes through a teacher's presence. 
They wrote, deepening their capacity to listen, extending themselves in care, expressing delight or interest, exhibiting patience when their lessons are thwarted by a recalcitrant or otherwise struggling student. These are the stuff of presence. So that's a good mindset. And that's, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll keep talking about that research forever, probably. But it's also that was the first piece. And the second piece is also really important because that mindset of presence is also most effective when coupled with effective tactics. So that second piece to their research was the teaching craft itself. In their book, Reaching Boys, Teaching Boys, they have a whole collection of those practices. And a lot of them are applicable to trying to make the most of online learning. Lessons as games, for example, role play and performance, personal realization, teamwork, and competition. So when I asked John about teaching strategies in the midst of online learning, I wasn't too surprised when his answer touched on a lot of the same strategies. I think one thing is you've got to have, and this, this is online and this is in person. You've got to have short chunks of activities of teacher talk and then student talk. Because, you know, I used to think that it's true. In other words, how can we expect kids to sit still for this long in front of a screen? But then again, if we're, if we're honest, what are a lot of kids doing over the weekend or over the holidays? They're sitting still in front of a screen. I mean, my son can sit and play Madden for five hours in a row. Our kids can play Minecraft for five hours in a row. But the thing is, there's constant constant feedback. This is kind of different than what we talked about earlier, but in other words, there's constant feedback. You either you win or you fail or you move on or you advance. And as educators, some educators I know are gamifying things. Some educators are involving kids in games. And, you know, video games are masters at that. I mean, I remember reading this, this is probably 10 years ago, but the research and development companies for video games spend exponentially more on them than we do on mental health. And I mean, we could see the results. I mean, kids are land adults. We're, we're locked into these games because they're masters and they figured out how to capture our attention. So how in the world are we going to be able to compete with that if we don't, you know, do something to make it interesting, whether gamify it, let kids be more creative let them talk amongst each other, have breakout groups, have scavenger hunts, have whatever, break the mold, let them play games once in a while online. I mean, it's keeping things moving and keeping things moving quickly. That, that is the best way, I think, to get kids, and especially kids with ADHD or kids that have a hard time focusing, keeping them focused because they, they can do it. I mean, they, they can play video games all day long. So kids can sit still. The question is, have we figured out how to tap into that? And that's, it's hard. We haven't. I mean, I haven't. I've got a, a nine-year-old son who I have a hard time sometimes, you know, keeping focused on what I'm saying because he's, he's conditioned to playing games. But if I make it a game, for example, he and I have recently started, we'll, we'll lay in bed before we go to bed and we'll talk about who is your ultimate basketball team. And so we each get that. We take turns picking. So he'll pick... Michael Jordan, then I'll pick LeBron James, and then he picks somebody, then I pick somebody. But it's kind of like a game. And, you know, he can stay focused on that forever. And yet his brain is working the whole time. It involves listening and thinking at the same time. Because your yeah. brain, you, 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 can't, you can't miss something. Because if you miss something, you might give the same answer, you might do whatever, but it forces you to have to respond and create. At the same time, in other words, I have to listen to, let's say, the basketball player that you picked and I can't pick them. And then I have to be thinking, who am I going to pick next? And so I rule out that one person and now I've got to pick a person. But I mean, this can be done with any skill or any topic, really. If you were listening to that thinking, OK, well, that is easier said than done. I get that. I was just hanging out with a friend who's always been extremely skilled, spirited and generous with young people. And he was like, he basically was like, this has been the worst year of my life. So like genuinely, like, let's be real. This has been a really hard time. And dare I say, especially hard for those of us who are so closely involved with giving ourselves to other people, particularly young people who often depend on us in so many ways. It's been, what, draining, exhausting, dispiriting, challenging, frustrating, uh, limiting, boring, 
I'm not trying to delve too deeply into the, the pandemic black hole, but just to say that, yes, teaching and learning has been hard. And if all you're doing right now is managing to tune into an online classroom as often as you're supposed to, that is really like that really is good enough. So the last thing John and I talked about was what advice would he have beyond teaching or learning effectively online? What's the best advice for teachers and educators and also learners to carry with them for the rest of the school year? I think vulnerability. I always go back to vulnerability. That's something I talk about a lot and think about and write about a lot. But I think trying to pretend that you have it all together when, when nobody does takes an incredible amount of work. And it's not worth it because it's just, you know, n- nobody does have it all together. I think being able to say, you know what, this is hard. I messed up. I'm struggling. And, you know, being able to reach out to other people. I think oftentimes we're, we're worried about reaching out to other people for help with something, especially right now. Because like I said, and like we all know, this is brand new to everyone. But I think reaching out to others for help is so important because not only you know, it, it expands the resources that you have. It also, you know, takes something off of your plate. And by that same token, you know, I think teachers would want someone to reach out for them if they were able to help. I think we're always worried that if we reach out to someone and say, you know what, I'm not quite sure how to do this. We think it's going to make us appear weak or as if we're you know, not competent or capable in our job as educators. Because educators are still, you know, we, they have evaluations and I think they're worried and in some cases, I guess rightly so, but a lot of times it's not that they're worried that if they reach out and ask for help, that someone's going to think less of them. And really it, it ends up, it shows a lot of courage and it shows a lot of strength to be able to say, you know what, I'm not quite sure how to do this. Can you, how did you teach that fraction unit online? How were you able to meet with those small groups so well? How did you manage your time with that? Because I've worked with one group and it went, it took 30 minutes and then I couldn't get to the other two. But I think being able to show vulnerability is very powerful for teachers, for educators in general. I think that's, that's one definite thing that I would talk about. And I do talk about with educators all the time right now, just saying, you know what, this is hard and realizing that it is going to be hard. I think, again, like I said, with kids, something else is what can you control? There's definitely things you can control. And that's frustrating, but what can you control? You can control your sleep. You can control what you eat. You can control your exercise. There's little things you can do. There's little routines you can do that can help you feel like, you know, things are a little bit closer to normal than they are. And I know they're not, not by a long stretch, but, you know, if you get yourself in some kind of routine and it doesn't have to be massive, I think oftentimes we see on social media, the best examples and the end results of people's hard work. In other words, we'll see the, let's see, we'll see the finished book or we'll see the album or we'll see the athletes or the musicians or the actors or the dancers. What we don't see are all the hours that go into that. And so we, we, we compare ourselves to that and we think, you know what, there's no way I can do that. And we think we have to do that when we don't really All we need to do is just a little bit better each day, 1% better each day. And, you know, I I always talk about and quote James Clear, or not quote him, but I I think about so much that I've learned from Atomic Habits. It's one of my favorite books, I would say, the last couple of years, but it might be one of my favorite books ever. And he had a graph in there that was absolutely amazing. He talks about how if you get just 1% better each day by the end of the year, you're I forget what it is, like 200 and sometimes better than you were when you started. And he shows the graph and the math and it it blows me away every time. Whereas if you're 1% worse every day, you pretty much end up at the same place, not a whole lot different. I say this a lot. I mean, we're, we're tougher on ourselves than we're, we are on anyone else. I mean, we talk to ourselves in ways that we never would talk to students or colleagues and, and we need to stop it. I mean, we're really hard on ourselves. You know, as the old saying goes, what, which wolf are you going to feed, the good wolf or the bad wolf? And if you feed the good wolf, it's just, you know, what kind of person do you want to be?
the reason that I pulled myself back to my editing software to finish this episode is because I just heard about this from a high school student in one of the programs I'm running with Next Gen Men. We did this really cool explorative activity over several weeks. This is a group of high schoolers, and we basically took all the norms of masculinity as well as the personal characteristics that mattered most to us and looked for the ones in common. So it was things like um, being funny, being responsible, trying hard to be the best. And then we brainstormed, well, what does it look like when those things are harmful? And what does it look like when those things are healthy and positive? Then we discussed the qualities, values, and behaviors that make the difference, that would push you towards positive enactments of those character traits of masculinity. And the last thing we did was look for commonalities. One of the most impactful things that the youth landed on was the idea that the ends are more important than the means. That you have to remember, what am I doing this for? So for example, am I making a joke because I want people to laugh or because I want people to feel good to be around me? And that means if people are laughing because I made the joke that actually like exacerbates oppression, like I'm not actually achieving that deeper goal of people feeling good and connected. Or um, am I trying to be the best because I want to be my best self or because I want others to be worse than me? And that means if like if I get stuck on trying to dominate or outperform someone, I'm not actually being the best version of myself that I can be. It was a really cool, really, really cool set of discussions. But to go back to John, it's like that idea of focusing on being 1% better each day and thinking of the kind of person you want to be. When I think of Jack, like I guess it gives me a bit of perspective to zoom out from the day-to-day -day realities of online learning and social distancing and think about, well, what do you want as a young adolescent? Do you want to get a good grade or do you want to be thoughtfully engaged in a learning relationship? Do you want to have fun on Minecraft or do you want to be meaningfully connected to your peers? That doesn't necessarily make it any easier, but for me in the midst of a really complex and unfamiliar time, it gives me a better sense of clarity. Boys' hearts are the same as they've always been. They want to have fun. They want to make mistakes. They want to be themselves and be known, which means that for those of us who know them and are there with them, we've got work to do. My name is Jonathan Reed, and supporting boys and building community online has been the center of my work with NextGen Men throughout the pandemic. This podcast is supported by NextGen Men, an organization leading the way in Canada in engaging and empowering boys on topics of gender. You can learn more at nextgenmen.ca. I have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with NextGen Men on the way, which I'm looking forward to telling you all about either next episode or next season coming soon. You can contact me at breakingtheboycode at gmail.com or at boypodcast on social media. If your boys are either learning or connecting with each other online right now, ask them what's working. Ask them what's not. Ask them how you can support them.